Hello, it's Pete, and welcome again to EdTech Innovators. This time, we have Daisy Christodoulou, one of the most high-profile people in education, and she'll be talking to us for the entire episode. Enjoy. Your guest today on EdTech Innovators, which is our new title, and she's somebody who's um, very influential. It was named in 2017 as the one of the top 20 most influential people in education. She's the author of several books, including Seven Myths About Education, and has a new book coming out, which we'll be talking about a little bit later on. That's Teachers Versus Tech. Um, and we'll be talking about um, No More Marking. Uh, she's the director of education for No More Marking. And we'll also be talking about West Ham, which is a very important part of our conversation. So uh, can I introduce Daisy Christodoulou? Hi, hi Pete. Hi Daisy. Um, right, so it's really good to to talk to you. Um, and what I'd like to start with, if it's okay with you, is is West Ham. Um, so, um, apologies to people who don't know what VAR is. Um, uh, the audience will be quite techy, so they they can just go away and Google what VAR is, can't they? But um, the first thing that I want to talk about really is a segue into what we really want to talk about, which, which is ed tech and technology and, and education in general, is this fascinating thread that you were uh, curating and, uh, at the match uh, a few days ago uh, about VAR. Um, and I'll start off with, um, I'll just quote one of them verbatim, if that's okay with you. Um, sure. So it started off with the VAR decision um, that went on for like three hours or something it went on for way too long and um there's quite a long thread and at one point you said what i find fascinating about var is how it perfectly encapsulates many wider 21st century preoccupations the promises and limitations of rationality the tensions between the rule of law experts crowds and tradition and the challenges of finding meaning in late modernity yeah brilliant and um, so uh, I'd like to think that, that segues quite nicely into your book, which you'll talk about, your next book, which we'll talk about in a minute. But um, yeah, how is it for you? <laughs> what, the, the match or the... Match. Or the um, yeah, the whole VAR thing and how it relates to <laughs> yeah. your, so your thinking. What education. I find really interesting about tech in sports is, well, yeah, as I said in that tweet, it, 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 a lot of the issues we think about of tech in sports actually apply to a lot of other areas of life. And because obviously sport is so popular and you see things like VAR, you're seeing these issues played out in real time. It's actually a really good way of, of thinking about uh, the impact of technology on our lives. And it, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I don't just follow football. I follow a lot of sports. Um, I, you know, I'll tell you, like, one of the first times I've thought about technology in sport was when I was, you know, a, a very young kid. My dad watched a lot of horse racing and used to get those photo finishes, you know, mm -hmm. those dead heats that were very, very close. And they slow it down frame by frame um and and it, i just think inevitably with those things you can't help thinking you know if people have got a lot of money riding on one of those horses <laughs> uh and you're, you're dry you know you're, you're going to a frame and is it a nose is it a, you know a, a hair on a nose like what what does it mean uh, i guess so that's what i was trying to say about um the, the things about meaning and that you know technology you can go ever and ever more precise and and, and where does it leave you but, um, you know, the flip side of that is we all want, we, we, we need, you know, we need to, to, to be more precise in lots of areas. And that precision brings you lots of good things. So if you move it away from sport, you look at precision engineering, uh, the world wouldn't exist. You know, all the things that we, we, we just take for granted today wouldn't exist without a measurement that's, uh, you know, way in excess of, of what we're able to do with the, the naked eye or just in everyday life. So, 
yeah, I find these things are, are really interesting and, and sport is a really interesting, um, you know, really interesting way of, of thinking about a lot of these things. And yeah, my book on education is 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 all about that some of those same issues, uh, technological issues, but but how they play out in education. Yeah, I, mean, I like. I, I like before we talk about the book, I really like the um, the idea of opposition in the in the title. Obviously, you know, teachers versus tech, yeah. and that did make me think about so yeah. think just going back to VAR and and, and football. Um, just that this the, the idea that VAR as you know a, a technological innovation, as it were, has this vanity that people think that it's a machine that's making the decisions, yeah. uh, that, you know, that it's removing human decision from the, the whole process. Um, and it seems to me quite, um, it, it, it's so they think the fans are stupid that, that, you know, it's a machine making the decisions and not some human uh, down the road. Um, so do you see um, tech and teaching as very much in opposition or, or in tension with one another? Mm. Yeah, you raise a really good point there about, um, you know, people think it's a machine making the decisions and, and it's a bit like the Wizard of Oz, isn't it? You know, there's a guy behind the behind the machine. Um, and there's actually that, that 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 same dynamic goes right back to the kind of very early days of computers. And actually, in my new book, the, the epigraph is a quotation from Charles Babbage, who's one of the founders of the modern computer. And he kind of builds the first sort of calculating machine. Um, and he says he, he says about this machine, he says when it shows it to people, he says, sometimes people say to him, if I put the wrong numbers in, will it give me the right answer? <laughs> and he says, I, he's got a great line. He says, I'm not rightly able to comprehend the confusion that can go into such a question. And yeah. I think that's an issue I think about a lot with technology. And modern computer scientists have a, um, um, a more catchy network name for that same concept, which is garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> and and, and I, I talk about that a lot in my, my second book on assessment, because I think the thing you talk about, you, you see a lot with assessment where you get people looking at um, spreadsheets full of data as though the wisdom is in the data. Mm. Uh, and my question is always, well, you know, where's that data come from? <laughs> and certainly in the days of national curriculum levels, a lot of that data you felt, well, this is, uh, what does it mean? <laughs> um, yes. What does it mean to be a level four? And you dig into it and, and you realise the kind of judgments are being made, have very little reliability, very little validity. And yet they're being aggregated up to form some numbers on a spreadsheet where they seem to take on this higher truth. Mm. So, yeah, I definitely think a really important part of technology is realising that, um, you know, technology is very often a human creation and a lot of those human uh, problems and flaws and issues go into it. And then, you know, it doesn't necessarily eliminate the the, the, the place for human error. Um, having said that, you know, I'm not, the, the book is not anti-technology. It's not, I like to think it's not pro-tech, it's not anti-tech. Um, there are lots of good things you can do with technology. And I think that maybe our problem is we kind of oscillate between on the one hand, just thinking, my goodness, technology is amazing. It's the, the God. It's going to solve all our human problems to then demonizing it and saying, well, it's, it's got all these flaws, all these problems. It'll never do anything good. And as ever with these things, you know, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, mm -hmm. So what I try to do in the book is just look at different applications of technology and look at some which are, are likely to succeed and some which are less likely to succeed. Uh, so that's, yeah. the, that's the kind of outline of it. I mean, that, I suppose that moves on. That does um, develop quite nicely from no more marking from your work with uh, no more marking with comparative judgment. Um, so, for people who don't know a great deal about that, do you feel that comparative judgment is one of the ways in which one of the positive directions technology is moving in and should be moving in? 
Yeah, absolutely. So obviously I'm biased. I put all my cards on the table. I worked full time for No More Marking. Mm. The, the minute I saw I was working at art schools, the minute I saw, so Chris Whedon, who's the founder of No More Marking, uh, he came in a few years ago to art schools and demonstrated comparative judgment. And the minute I saw it, I was totally blown away. I just thought it was the most amazing thing ever. Um, and so that's, that's, you know, now I work full time for them and I still think it's the most amazing thing ever. And I think that it is, I do have a chapter on comparative judgment in the book because I do think it is emblematic of how technology can help education and how technology can add value. And I think what's really fascinating about comparative judgment too is it isn't just about the technology taking over, there's a strong human element in it too. So I just explain for people who don't understand how it works, it's a different yeah. way of assessing open tasks like essays. So the traditional way of assessing essays is you have a rubric, you have the essay, you know, so some kind of mark scheme and the essay. And what you're doing is you're looking at the essay, you're looking at the mark scheme, you're going back and forward, and you're trying to kind of dead reckon, make an absolute judgment about what mark does that essay deserve. And comparative judgment is different. Comparative judgment, you look at two essays at a time, you read them both, and you say, which is the better essay, which is the better piece of writing. And then when you, you make a series of decisions like that, your colleagues join in and make a series of decisions like that, and then the comparative judgment algorithm combines all of those decisions to come up with a measurement scale for every piece of writing. Mm -hmm. So obviously that's a very, very quick overview. And I generally say to people, actually try and do a demo to understand it because I, I, the first time Chris explained it to me, you know, I didn't fully get it. You have to kind of ex do it to experience it, to, to get it. Um, yeah, never really, really. Basic, yeah, just on that basic, that basic reading of it, you can see there it's an interplay between tech and, and humans. Mm -hmm. There is human judgment at the absolute heart of it. It isn't that the technology is making the judgment, the humans are making the judgments, but the humans are making the judgments in a different format to, to, to what is usual. And the technology is being used to aggregate and combine and, and process a lot of those judgments uh, in a way that isn't, wasn't possible even a few years ago, really, before you had you know, really fast kind of cloud computing. So that's the, that's the, the, the basic outline of it. And that, as I say, is I think a nice model of teachers and technology, of that balance between what teachers do well, what what technology does well. Yeah, that, that, that's great. And what I was going to say, you've answered this point anyway, but you have, you have this really nice, simple way of explaining comparative judgment about, you know, that if you have two people standing next to each other and, and, and you can judge which one is taller, whereas you can't you know, estimate somebody's height. Um, but yeah, so do you... I mean, do you see this as the the heart of this, you know, proposed tech revolution? Then, if there is going to be a tech and edtech revolution, should it be along these lines, where it's not part of pedagogy? You're not you're not sort of planning your lessons with technology because that's going to help people learn. The tech is going to help people learn. The tech is going to be one of these tools in the background that's going to crunch the data and so on. Yeah, so I have a, a, a quite a bit in the book where I uh, discuss some of these issues. Um, what are the things that teachers you feel like that 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 computers won't be able to replace or take over? And so, <clears throat> and one of the things where where they can. And so, one of the things I talk about a lot, and I talked about that in that in that tweet thread about VAR as well, is I talk quite a bit about tacit knowledge. And tacit knowledge are those things that they're real, they exist, <laughs> but they're quite hard to communicate in words or in writing. And if I give an example, if you try and explain in words. <laughs> Uh, how to ride a bike it can be pretty difficult um it's one of those things where you kind of maybe have to but but get the bike and 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 it's hard to explain sometimes exactly how it is those times when you kept falling off the bike and suddenly you can balance and it, and it works mm. so tacit knowledge of those things those things which are real which exist hard to communicate in words 
it applies to, to the concept of taxonology it applies to marking essays because the idea is there is a notion of quality in essays but often the rubrics the mark schemes find it very hard to capture that and the rubrics and the mark schemes um really uh, end up end up describing things that are not the true quality of the essay and the same is true i talk about in the in the in the, in the tweet on var because the same is true really of a lot of rules and the same is true of a lot of rules in football when you're saying oh, a clear and obvious handball that reminds me of some of those uh, rubrics you get in marking essays where they talk about adequate or uh, accurate or exceptional. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I've yeah. been in moderation meetings where you've had 20 minute discussions over what does adequate mean in the context of this essay. And now I see, isn't it lovely, you know, Gary Lineker and Ian Wright are doing the same thing with clear and obvious. <laughs> on match of the day. So we all have the same problems. Um, yeah. And, to go back to so you, you know your original question like what can teachers do what can they not do uh i do think that the thing so the thing we know that computers struggle with is they do struggle with these issues of tacit knowledge right and it is true that artificial intelligence is making some big breakthroughs in some of those areas but still the thing that artificial intelligence the thing that computers generally find find tough are those things where it's very hard to put down in writing you know to really specifically express uh, exactly what it is you're, talk, you're talking about and in the book I discuss this with relation again to essay marking that some of the earliest automated essay markers they came up with an algorithm for marking essays which had a bunch of features and factors and ultimately it just ended up rewarding length mm. you know or it would have you know length of, of the, the overall essay length of the sentences so it's hard to explain to a machine what we mean by quality and, and that's why with anything involving teaching more broadly, the thing that I'd be wary about if you're saying can computers take everything over, I'd be wary about that because of this tacit knowledge thing, because there are so many things that we take for granted that are hard to communicate and to, to code. Mm. So that's where I think the challenge is. And that's why I think very radical transformations of what a school looks like, I think are going to be difficult. But yeah. what are the ways that's what are the ways that tech can help? I'm not saying it can't help at all. I'll tell you the way it can help. Well, look, I've just talked about the algorithm we use for comparative judgment. And algorithms generally, if, if, if you're using them, you know, they're not taking over everything, but you're using them for specific jobs, they can add a hell of a lot of value because uh, they're consistent and because they're able to, you know, crunch through large sets of data very quickly in a way that humans find very tedious, very difficult. Mm. So the other area where I think algorithms can really add value is in the testing effects retrieval practice mm. so my the, the, the idea i put forward at the end is the idea maybe you will have lessons in schools that do look quite similar to what we have today but maybe your homework will be different and maybe the homework is students going home and doing their retrieval practice about what they've learned in school that day the past week the past months the past years and that is all sitting in an adaptive system that is dealing out questions to them that is personalised based on their own strengths and weaknesses that they've, where they've got questions right and wrong in the past. Mm -hmm. And those kind of algorithms exist already. There's plenty of flashcard apps and apps that use those algorithms. And it's something, again, a little bit like comparative judgment, where something actually relatively simple can have enormous power. Mm. And I use a flashcard app myself, Anki, and I'm, I'm mildly obsessed with it. It's really cool. And it is amazing how it does just seem to deal out questions to you at the point where you're on the verge of forgetting them and that's right. the best time to have the question 
And so can you imagine for one teacher how difficult it would be to design the perfect sequence of flashcards for every individual pupil in all their classes? Mm. Be fiendish. Uh, but an algorithm will do it for you. Mm. So they're, they're, that's where they add the value. Um, where you've got to be wary is, as I say, with the tacit knowledge, you've got to, you've got to be careful. Excellent. So do, do you think that, you know, the, the, these things about retrieval practice and the tech that can, that can power those and, and augment them, is that, to, is that likely to empower teachers then to do what they can do to, to demonstrate those soft skills and, and so on? Yeah, so I don't want to. I don't want to necessarily think of tacit knowledge as all being soft skills. I think that's that's it's not that. I think there's a lot of hard stuff where where tacit knowledge um, is still really important. And in fact, the concept of tacit knowledge comes from Michael Polanyi, who was a, a chemist and, and made a number of big sort of breakthroughs in, in the hard sciences. So I don't want to say that it is it, tacit knowledge is all about about soft skills. Um, I think that yes, I think that what you obviously you do hope is that. <clears throat> Some of the things that are quite difficult or tedious for humans to do or where they don't, they are, have a tendency to make mistakes, technology can come in and support. Yeah. So, as I say, crunching through large sets of data, lots of calculations, that's the kind of thing that humans find tedious, prone to error. Computers can just do it instantly yeah. and, 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 and with, 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 with no error and very, very consistently. So I do think it is about looking at, at where the, the, the current kind of strengths and weaknesses are. Mm-hmm. I am always slightly wary, though. I can see where kind of the argument goes of, of people who say, well, human beings are creative. Technology is good at the routine. So let's get humans to focus on the creative. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, I write about talk about this a little bit in the book, too. You've got to be careful about that, mm-hmm. because actually that, the, the, the division between humans and technology is not necessarily humans are creative technology isn't. The, the, yeah. the division is probably computers are very good at very consistent information processing. But when you do lots of very complex information processing, you can come out, end up with some quite creative things. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I want to be wary of that, that thing that says, oh, it's going to free humans up to focus on the, on the creative and, and, and the computers will take over the routine. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's quite as straightforward as that. Yeah, and in a few moments' time, we'll be talking about uh, social media, if that's okay with you. And uh, obviously, this idea that uh, humans are increasingly guilty of seeing things in a very binary way, which, uh, <laughs> which has, technology is, uh, has, been, has always been there to do. Um, absolutely wonderful. So in, in terms of the, the book and so on, if you've got a book tour coming up, if you've got some talks specific to the book and uh, to publicise it? Well, yeah, I've got a few podcasts. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um... Yeah, and a few a few places where I'll be I'll be talking about it. I'll be at the Birmingham Research Ed, I think, just after it it comes out. So yeah. I'll be I'll be talking there about 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 the main themes in it. Yeah, that's the fun part, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Apart well, apart from when you get the the naysayers, of course, um, the people the people who sit there with their arms folded and resist um, everything that you're trying to say about ed, about edtech. Um, I mean, what, what, what are the most difficult questions that you get, especially about no more marking, in fact, about comparative judgment um, from the, the sort of you know, teacher naysayers? Yeah, so comparative judgment is really interesting. Naysayers, I think that the big thing about comparative judgment is it's very different. It's very different. And in fact, I was running a session in a, in a, in a primary school only the other day 
And the deputy head was saying to me, I really like this, but it is so different to what I'm used to. <laughs> You've really right. got to think differently. She said, I've been teaching for 30 years. She said, I think maybe, you know, the NQTs here is going to be really good for them because they kind of haven't had the 30 years of, of thinking of it in a different way. And I think that's very true. Mm-hmm. And so I, I genuinely do think there's a public understanding issue with it. Yeah. You, people have to understand it and they have to understand how it is different from from traditional assessment. And it is it's you know it can be seen as a bit of a pretentious phrase but uh it's a bit of a paradigm shift you know I've talked about tacit knowledge the, the phrase paradigm shift comes from from one of the writers who writes about tacit knowledge um Thomas Thomas Kuhn so people you know you have to think differently and you have to throw out some of your your, your, your preconceptions about assessment and the rubric people really depend on the rubric and the rubric I think in some ways has come to it's come to <clears throat> the rubric has come to represent expertise it's come to embody expertise um, you know it's the thing we rely on and, and again I, I think you can look at that in a wider society as well in that you can say we, we probably do live in an increasingly kind of bureaucratic legalistic society where um, those we are looking for stuff on paper to to kind of back up and justify our decisions mm-hmm. and rubric for, forms part of that mm. it's really interesting you go back to the the the, the 1950s you look at old o levels uh, either there isn't a rubric <laughs> or when they come in you know they're very very slim and mm. now you look at the kind of the mark schemes and the specifications that come with exams and, and it's enormous you know you have ring binders full of stuff and yeah. i think that's partly i really re- admire the, the 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 pressures behind that because one of the pressures behind that is to say look we have to do this properly we can't just be relying on 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 a kind of a cottage industry of, of of people doing this. We have to have some form of of certainty. But the 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 other side is, well, what to what extent does all this paperwork actually give us the accuracy we desire? What mm. if this paperwork is giving us the illusion of accuracy? That's mm. the sort of thing I said about national curriculum levels. People would say, oh, national curriculum levels give us a common language, and I'd say, no, they do something more dangerous than that. They give you the illusion of a common language. We all think yeah, we're talking sense. about the same thing. And actually, it's like you're using the word cat, but one person is using it to refer to an an- a one animal and another person is using it to refer to something quite different. So I think that, um, uh, yeah, I think that when it comes to comparative judgment, I think probably the biggest biggest difficulty people have is, is what does this mean for the rubric? What about the rubric? That, that's probably it. And, and I totally understand that. I yeah, that's a legitimate question. So yeah, I think you said before that you, you sometimes have to drag people kicking and screaming away from the rubric, <laughs> away from the rubric. They're very much yeah. you know beholden to that. Um, wonderful. In the next section, I asked Daisy about her use of social media, based upon the fact that she has over forty thousand followers on Twitter. So. Really look forward to to that um, in in a couple of weeks' time. Before we um f- before we finish, can I please ask you about social media and um, just a couple of things about that? I mean, one of them is um this one one th- one of the things I explore through my work is this 
disconnect really between not just mobile phones but between social media in the real world and social media in schools so obviously you know the kids are on social media all the time yet they're forbidden in many schools from actually having a phone uh, from bringing a phone into school from and using social media for learning you know to help them learn to you know augment their learning to deepen their learning or whatever um do you what are your feelings on that disconnect really between you know what kids are doing with their phones and on social in and what they're doing in schools and what they're forbidden from doing yeah so I have a chapter on this I have a whole chapter on this in the book and the chapter is all about attention <clears throat> and actually I think we talk about mobile phones in schools but I actually think it's really interesting because I think a lot of the issues that that schools have with mobile phones are actually issues that wider society has mm. and for me uh, I'm not against social media I think look I had a, I've had a Twitter account for a long time and it's made a big difference to my life <laughs> so I think there's a lot of good things about social media I do think that, and this I talk about this in the, in the book, that the the business models of a lot of the big social media companies and the, the, the more broadly the big tech companies is problematic for learning because the business models, because they all basically, you know, so few of them involve subscriptions and most of them involve advertising. Their business model is essentially how much of your attention they can grab. Mm. And so a lot of the time we talk about um, big tech companies, oh, they want your data, they want your data. And yeah, they do want your data, <laughs> but yeah. they kind of want your data in order to get something else, which is your attention. You know, a lot of the times the end goal is not your data. The end goal is your attention. Yeah. And there's all kinds of fascinating stuff about the cost of effectively an, uh, you know, a second, a second of people's attention. Advertisers look at, look at this, how much does it take to get people's attention? The cost of that has really gone up a lot over the last 10 to 15 years mm. as there are ever more competing pressures uh, on 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 our attention. So, yeah. and so the that, having sorry. the book I talk about, I, I just talk about the, the, the then the unethical things that uh, some of these companies are doing to grab your attention. And that's not just true in of, of kids in schools. That's true of all of us. They're trying to do that with all of us. And so, I think regulation is probably coming in this area, and it'll be interesting to see kind of what shape it takes because I think people are more and more aware that these business models there is something slightly dubious about them. Yeah, it can never be an equitable model, can it? If the it's a one-way uh, street, isn't it? Because you know, you take, I grab your attention, you get nothing in return, apart from some kind of you know addictive behaviour, if you like. Um, interesting. So, and I think one of the things that I would want to put to you as well about social media is, um, how do you feel about being uh, referred to as an influencer? <laughs> it's a well, dirty this- word, isn't it? Yeah, there's a lot of these. Um, I, I just used the word paradigm shift, didn't I? Um, yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of jargon out there. Um, if people feel that they find my work interesting and they find it helpful, then that's lovely. I'm very. <laughs> <laughs> but how has Twitter helped you, though? I mean, obviously, you, you, you do. You are an influencer, you know, in, insofar as you have. Was it forty-seven thousand followers, something like that? Uh, was it more than that? Um, many of them, but go on. Yeah. Yeah, many, many followers um, and a, a great deal of engagement. And so, how has Twitter actually helped you in in, in your career and and what you're trying to, um, I suppose, get across to people? Yeah, I think the interesting thing about social media is it, it, it or at least certainly in its early stages, is it removes traditional gatekeepers. Mm. So I guess, you know, I joined it in 2010, I was in my 20s, and I was writing things about education that were 
really in, in contradiction, I guess, to most of the received wisdom within education. And I think without Twitter, I'd have had a much harder job getting my views heard. Mm. I also, so I think one thing it does, it lets you bypass some of those traditional institutions and traditional gatekeepers. The other thing it lets you do is it makes it much easier to make friends with like-minded people. Mm-hmm. So again, what I realized when I started tweeting is there were a lot of other people who felt like me and a lot of other people who were skeptical of, again, some of this received wisdom, but they weren't all in my school. <laughs> uh, they weren't all living, you know, on my street. Yeah. So you've got the ability to connect with a lot of other people and to form networks with a lot of other people who, you know, you're not geographically concentrated and then you can, can form more of an alliance. So certainly for me, yeah, I think that in those areas and I think for, for, for a lot of us who are um, in education, it's been really good. It's allowed new voices. It's allowed, it's allowed, as I say, people who were maybe finding it harder to, to, to get a voice and to get ideas out there. It's allowed them to, to, to get their ideas out there a bit more. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Daisy. It's been, it's been really pleasurable and really informative talking to you. Um, I'm very grateful that you've, that you've come on the podcast. A few more to come before the book is uh, released, of course, before the book is published. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you so much. One more question. Can technology sort out West Ham's defence? <laughs> it's beyond all hope, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, I might have to rely on David Moyes' death stare instead. Absolutely, yeah. We'll see what that does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Um, so um, I look forward to, um, to catching up with you um, in some form on social, probably just before the book is published. But um, I thank you once more. That's great. Thanks very much, Pete. Really enjoyed that. Thanks a lot for listening. That's all for this week. And we look forward to seeing you next week, where we'll be talking about more edtech and education innovation. Until then... See you later.